to the nation of Israel and to all the nations. And that anyone who hears and believes the message can and will be saved. Luke chapter 2, we will read once again verses 1 through 20 and look at the second half of this passage this morning. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. Every year when the calendar changes from the 10th month to the 11th, when October and Halloween or Reformation Day passes and goes over to November 1st, there's a certain sense of dread that I feel, and perhaps some of you do as well. And that sense of dread is the long two months of Christmas are upon us. I have no problem with Christmas, of course. It's one of my favorite holidays and always has been. However, due to some commercialization, uh, a certain number of retailers, perhaps all of them, uh, looking to get into the Christmas spirit or get us into the purchasing spirit, perhaps, have uh, taken that as their cue to begin to make everything red and green and to begin the Christmas music, the same 15 songs, 12 of which we might never listen to if they weren't about Christmas, uh, playing on the radio and in every store you go into and everywhere around you. And of course, this can get a little bit tiresome if you're not someone who absolutely loves the season. It does seem to creep back more and more in what some have called the Christmas creep earlier and earlier and earlier every year. 
Of course, while I may not enjoy this in terms of the daily barrage of everything that has to do with that in that season, um, you'll excuse me if perhaps I'm going to try to one-up them this morning and we'll back all the way up, not just to the beginning of November, but the beginning of July and have Christmas right in the middle of summer. Of course, there's a lot more warrant for us to do this as this is the next place in the text as we go through the gospel according to Luke. And there is no better time than whatever day you're in to consider the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And what a blessing it is to consider it not just during the traditional time of the year at Christmas time, but during this time when we might not otherwise think that much about it. Because this is, of course, one of the most significant events to happen in all of history. The creation of the world, God's uh, bringing Jesus Christ to the cross and the resurrection in that fateful weekend, and Jesus Christ coming into the world, being born in a lowly place in not any kind of fame or significance, not well known to almost anyone in particular when Uh, until the time when he was announced by the shepherds and the angel, as we read here. And yet, one of the most significant things that has ever happened in the history of the world and will ever happen in the history of the world. And this is what we read about. Now, last time we were here, we began to explore this passage and saw that Mary gave birth in Bethlehem. This was by virtue of the sovereign decree of Caesar Augustus in verse 1 who decreed that a census would be taken of all the inhabited earth but this was also by the sovereign decree of God who ordained that it would be that this Joseph and this Mary who otherwise would remain in Nazareth in Galilee would make their way to the city of David to the home of the one who had been promised to have a dynasty in the kingdom over Israel, this one who would be the forerunner or rather the ancestor of the Messiah, this David, God made sure that the one who was born as the Messiah would be born in the town where David was from. And this is not just because he was born there, but also in accordance with the prophecy given in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which said that a ruler would come forth from the small town of Bethlehem. So Mary gave birth in Bethlehem because this was decreed not only in human terms by Caesar, but by the God who ordains all things. They went up to Jerusalem. They, uh, while they were there, Mary had this child Jesus Christ, who has not yet been named, though the name has been given. And she takes him and she puts him into cloths and lays him in a manger, as it says in verse 7. If they had known who he was, then perhaps they would have found a place for him. In the inn where they were staying, as it were, there was no room for them in that inn. There is no place for this child to be born. And so he finds his bed among the cattle among the livestock, placed into a manger in about the most humble conditions that one could find himself. This future ruler came in obscurity and humility. And yet it would not be long that he would be so unknown because these shepherds were in the fields. And in addition to Mary giving birth in Bethlehem, then we found, beginning in verse 8, that angels proclaimed the Savior's birth. And so Jesus did not remain unknown even for just a few hours 
he was announced to uh, these shepherds by virtue of an angel appearing. The angel, it says, uh, appeared. He stood before them, verse 9, and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But he didn't just come with a show of glory and a show of power. He came with a message. He came to tell the shepherds what had happened that very night. And so he says in verse 10, don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. We saw the angel's uh, appearance and then began to consider the angel's announcement. The goodness of the message is found here. Don't be afraid. This is good news. This is a message of great joy. And the reason is that in the city of David today, verse 11, a Savior has been born for you who is Christ the Lord. Now, last time we considered uh, up to this point and considered the fact that there was born a Savior, one who came into the world to save, to save on a forgiveness level, offering forgiveness of sins to all who believe, and one who came to deliver his people from all of the oppression that was going on by virtue of being conquered by another nation and being ruled by an empire who had come upon them. In this, we find that the Savior has been, as he says, born. And even in just that statement, there's extreme theological significance. The promise Jesus has come and the birth of the Son of God has taken place. We saw a promise of this back in chapter 1 and verse 35. If you look over there, the angel answered and said to her, namely Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And what we now have by virtue of this one who has just been born, is the union of two natures found in one person. We have a divine nature and a human nature. Theologians refer to this as the hypostatic union. The union of these two natures together in one person. That is to say that Jesus Christ is the God-man, fully and truly God and at the same time, fully and truly man. Now, the Son of God has always existed as the second person of the Trinity, fully God in who he has always been, no less God than the Father or the Holy Spirit. He was there at creation, as what the Apostle John refers to as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We are told that all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Colossians chapter 1, we learn that God created all things through him so that Jesus is the one who is giving substance and reality to all creation. But then John 1.14 tells us that this word became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning that he also became human, just like us, flesh and blood. That's what happened in the coming of Christ. He maintained his divine nature unaltered in any way, giving up none of his divine attributes. But while remaining who he had always been, he became something else as well, namely a human being. He took on human flesh in all its essential realities. In the book of Hebrews, we learn about this in chapter 2, and he He says in verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And it says in verse 17 that he had to be made like his brethren in all things. 
Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us that he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so Christ becomes fully human in every way that is essential to being human. Now, most human beings find themselves in a position where they have something that Jesus did not have, which is a record of sin. In fact, all human beings, apart from Christ, find themselves in that position. Everyone except for him possesses acts of sin that they have committed. And after Adam, a sinful nature from birth. Jesus Christ did not possess this. This is not essential to being human. But in every way that is essential to being human, he became just like us. And this was the case even insofar as to be born and to be raised in the world, growing, as we'll see as we get to the end of Luke chapter 2, in wisdom and in stature. And so he is the God-man, the Word become flesh. And he is now and forever will be God, the Son, the incarnate Son, God in the flesh. This God-man then arrives into the world in great obscurity in a little town called Bethlehem where he's not even deemed appropriate enough for him to stay in the inn upon his birth and he has to be laid down in a manger. And the message of his birth is sent to this unconventional and unexpected group of men, namely the shepherds. Last time we were in this passage, we considered the angel's appearance and some of his announcement and we heard from him that a savior has been born. But there is much more to Christ even than this. And so we learned of his salvation and the salvation that he brings, but we learn more about his identity as we continue on. Because in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, we learn that this day has been born in Bethlehem, not only someone who is a savior, but someone who the angel says is, look at it, Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. For the first time in Luke's gospel, we learn that this child is the Christ. He is referred to by this specific name. And of course, the fact that he's the son of David and the son of God implies that he is the Christ. Uh, in fact, the Jews understood that these were one and the same person, one and the same office. Uh, when, they asked, when Jesus later asked them, whose son is the Christ? They said, well, he's the son of David, of course. Everybody knew this, and so it's not as if this is coming out of nowhere to us as readers that he is the Christ, but it's the first time that he's been explicitly called this name. Now, Christ is just really the Greek term that's the Hebrew or the equivalent of the Hebrew concept of the Messiah, and it finds its root in the idea of anointing. When men were appointed to certain positions of service in the Old Testament, they were set apart and consecrated for those roles, and this was symbolized by their being anointed with oil, to have oil poured upon them or smeared upon them, rubbed upon them in some way. These roles included prophets, priests, and kings, all three roles which Jesus himself would one day carry out. The first two kings of Israel, Saul and David, were anointed with oil by the prophet and judge Samuel. But it's important to understand that these two men were also anointed another way, not just with physical oil, but by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord came upon these men in a special way to empower them for their role, for their service to God. Now, this was not unique to them. This happened to various people throughout the history of the Old Testament. Samson comes to mind as the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and enables him to have this supernatural power to lift up gates off their hinges, huge doors, and carry them uphill all night, or to rip apart a lion 
like a young goat or to, uh, to, uh, for other people to have wisdom in, in crafting the objects of the tabernacle and so on. When the promise of a coming final son of David was becoming more and more clear, that expected one came to be known as the one who would be anointed, the one who would have the spirit of the Lord upon him, the Christ or the Messiah. And he would be not just an anointed one, but the appointed one to the point where we could say this is the Christ. He stands out among all other anointed ones as the anointed one. And now here he is. He has been born The promised son of David who would rule forever on David's throne. That's why he says, the angel Gabriel tells Mary in verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, unlike his father's by the way, will have no end. Will have no end. Here he is then referred to as the Christ. But there's another element of his title as well. And this also is significant. Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. What does it mean that he is the Lord? It means that he is the ruler of all. It means that he is in charge. It means that he is the sovereign one. And as we will find even as we go throughout not only the Gospel of Luke, but other places in the New Testament, to be Lord means that he is the Lord of the Old Testament, the one true God of Israel. Not in distinction from the Father or the Spirit, but one who is, in fact, God, the God of Israel. This is why, for example, in John chapter 11, the uh, Apostle John refers back to Isaiah's vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6 and says of Jesus, these things Isaiah saw and spoke about him. Because this Jesus is not just a Lord and Master in some earthly sense, but in the ultimate sense. He is Christ the Lord. And though the shepherds may not have understood that in all of its fullness or the people around Jesus in all of its fullness in the way that they always use the term, we know from fleshing this out across the entirety of the New Testament, this is in fact who he is. The sovereign ruler over all who is none other than God himself. Here, Luke does what few other passages do, which is to speak of Jesus in all three of these roles in one place. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. And he is the Lord. And we cannot separate these roles from one another. There are some who would love for Christ to be the Savior, but who don't really care that much for him to be the Lord. And we hear language like, well, you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you need to make him Lord of your life. This is the kind of thing that people say. Well, certainly he does need to be the Lord of your life, but he is inherently the Lord. Whether you, quote unquote, make him Lord of your life or not, he is the Lord. He is in charge. The question is whether you'll actually recognize that. We come to Jesus Christ by calling on the name of the Lord, not isolating him in some kind of saving role as if we get all the benefits of salvation without being willing to submit to him as Lord. Now, let's be clear. You are under no obligation to commit acts of obedience to him as Lord before you can be saved. Salvation is by faith, it is instantaneous, it is upon belief in Christ, but you must be willing to submit to him as Lord in the approach with which you come to him. Your disposition in coming to Christ as Lord is not that I will believe him now for his benefits of salvation and maybe one day I'll start doing what he says. 
but it is an attitude that says, I am turning from my rebellion against God and I am submitting to Christ as Lord as the one who I am pleading to save me. So trusting in Christ as Savior means that you trust him for all that he is, not rejecting his lordship, not neglecting the fact that he is the ruler and the Christ, but instead embracing him in all of his roles, all of his offices, all of his titles, and all of who he is. This is who Jesus is, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this little one has been born, a tiny little baby, a tiny little one, and the angels say, or the angel rather, at this moment, tells the shepherds just what they can do to see this is true. This will be a sign for you, verse 12, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This would be a sign for confirmation, a sign for confirmation that what the angel has said is true. Now that you notice they never asked for a sign, just like Mary, there was no sign requested and yet the angel graciously gives this and this is going to serve as wonderful confirmation as if they needed it, but wonderful confirmation that what they're hearing is true. They're hearing an angel. Certainly all of them together are not seeing some kind of illusion, but all the more when they go and they see this child in this place, just as described in these unusual circumstances, all the more it will validate for them that what they're hearing is exactly the case. So there's a sign for confirmation, a baby wrapped in cloths, which wouldn't be unusual at all, but lying in a manger, a trough designed to hold food, for livestock. Now at this point, no doubt the shepherds are willing to go and to see, and yet even before they do that, there is more that comes. This is the angel's accompaniment. The angel's accompaniment. There is one angel, and he has given a message, and now he has many others who come alongside him to accompany and to fill out and even to further explain the message that he has given. And so verse 13, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now just up front, I should probably go ahead and um, pour a little bit of uh, damper on some of our Christmas songs because the text doesn't explicitly say here that they were singing as most of our songs say. And the text doesn't necessarily say that they were in the sky flying. They are heavenly hosts, meaning that they're from heaven. And it says that they were praising God and saying these things. Now, I have no problem with continuing to sing the songs that say these things. And I hope you don't either. We all understand the gist of this. Uh, but just for a matter of factually understanding what the text is and isn't saying here, all it says is these are heavenly hosts, namely the heavenly army, the army of angels. And just as the angel was standing before them, the one angel who showed up, so also it's very possible and maybe even likely that this army of angels that shows up is also standing on the ground with him. Either way, this is an amazing and overwhelming sight. God sending these angels who he is in charge of, this heavenly powerful army out into the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere talking to these shepherds. And when they come, they are doing what angels do best. They are praising God. Psalm 148 verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. This is what they were designed to do. And here they're coming and they are doing it before an earthly audience. They are praising God. The word here, by the way, is one that usually has a tone 
not just of stating praise, but of joy. Rejoicing while praising. And certainly there would be no more joyful occasion on which to praise God than the birth of the Son of God. All of these promises have come to pass. And this plan to redeem people through the God-man, through this servant who would serve as a substitute for sinners. He has come into the world and this plan has now really kicked into action. How much joy should this bring with this one coming into the world? And so it is with the angels and so it should be for us. This is why the songs talk about us joining the chorus of the angels who sing praise to him. This is what we ought to do to give glory to God. And this is what they said. When they came, they were praising God, but they weren't just doing so sort of generically, but they were in the process of this interpreting the significance of the birth of the Son. So what did they actually say? What they did was to praise, and what they said is found in verse 14. And there are several things going on here. Um, He talks about the realm in which these things take place, two realms. Uh, He talks about two main parties where those realms are, uh, people, not, uh, not the kind of party that you would throw for someone, and then two outcomes that are brought about by the birth of Jesus Christ. So these two realms, two parties, and two outcomes. The first of these is glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Now, when we think about who God is, God himself is inherently glorious. And in one sense, God needs no glory from anyone else. God would be perfectly glorious even if no one was ever created, if no angels ever existed, and if no praise was given to him at all. He is not dependent upon us in any way for that. But in his good pleasure, he has created a world in which he would be glorified. And not just that he would be glorious, but he would be actively glorified by his creatures. And this is one of those occasions that shows why. Glory to God in the highest. This is, uh, in a sense, the place where God dwells. He is the most high. He dwells in heaven. God is, of course, everywhere. He is omnipresent in his nature. But he sort of localizes his presence as far as uh, heaven is concerned. He is there. And so when it is glory to God in the highest, there is a focus upon giving God praise as the one who is above us and who is high and exalted. And we recognize the distinction between us and God. And so in heaven, there is to be glory given to God. This glory going Godward finds its way to that space, so to speak. At the same time, there's something going on on earth. On earth, peace. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. In Micah 5.5, we read of this coming Messiah. This one will be our peace. Peace on earth. What a statement to make. How many times in recent years have you heard someone use the phrase, or maybe you've used the phrase, all that's going on out there, all that's going on right now. You know what I'm talking about? All that's going on. That's kind of just the general phrase. And what are people referring to when they say that? Well, they're referring to all that's going on. Uh, You don't really have to say anything. It's just whatever kind of chaotic, crazy things are going on according to the way that we perceive it in the world. Now, of course, it could be that one person's all that's going on is very different than another person's all that's going on. And we interpret those things differently. 
A lot of these things have to do with politics and culture and social things, but largely it's just about the general turmoil that they perceive to exist in the world to the point where many people feel like things are out of control. They wonder what's going to happen. What is this world going to be like? What's it going to be like in the future? What's going to happen in the next few years or the next few decades? And people realize that they don't have peace. How do people today then think that they can get peace? Well, some of you might try to do this by shutting off the news and getting out of the sensationalism that comes and uh, characterized, uh, characterizes the engagement-driven news cycle. Other people may have bought the lie that it's appropriate to uh, seek peace by cutting off the kind of people that you refer to as toxic from your lives. You think that you can just cut people out and that will make everything nice and good and peaceful as if the Bible has nothing to say about the way we treat people who do us wrong. You might be seeking peace by the accumulation of possessions which can make you less beholden to certain earthly concerns. You don't have to worry about the kinds of things that might characterize day-to-day struggles. You say, if I can just get enough wealth, then I can kind of be above the fray on those things. Of course, Jesus warns us not to store up treasure on earth because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And there is no such thing as a certain earthly treasure. And so this won't work. It could just be that you're trying to isolate yourself and not having to deal with all the craziness you perceive to be happening around you. And you just become very what we call introverted. But really it's just kind of gathering into a life that's all about yourself without thinking about what God says about the way you're supposed to interact with the world. Some of these things, to be sure, may have the effect of removing certain kinds of anxiety or worry or turmoil or conflict. And you can find people that can go through life with a relative lack of worry, but ultimately they don't bring what the angel describes here. Peace on earth. Peace, instead, in God's economy, is total It is total. It is a peace that actually takes over and gets rid of the things that cause these kinds of problems. Now, there is an ultimate way in which God will bring this peace. He will cause the nations to turn their swords into plowshares, so to speak, to take their weapons of war and to use those materials for things that are productive He promises that one day there will no longer be any war. No sorrow, no crying, no more suffering, no more pain. It's an amazing promise that we have. One day there will be complete and total peace on earth when Jesus rules. But for those of us who live on the side of history before Christ culminates that rule, we still have the opportunity to experience peace, and we can do so in two primary ways. Namely, our standing before God, And in our walk before God, our relationship with him. Let's talk about our standing for a moment. The most important peace that we can have, of course, is not a peaceful feeling, but rather to be at peace with God. If you had provoked someone, an entire nation, let's say, and done harm to them and rebelled against them and maybe even tried to assassinate their leader you would be pretty afraid of that nation if it was powerful coming against you and trying to seek you out and to give you retribution. Well, how much more is it the case with God? We have turned away and rebelled against God, all of us, and we all deserve the punishment that he gives. 
And this is why Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But if you look in Romans chapter 5 and you see the first two verses, what is the result of someone believing in Jesus and trusting in his death and his burial and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins? It says, therefore, we, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. Peace. Peace. It says in Romans 5.10 that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul refers to himself as having been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is to say that God is, until we believe, our enemy. And it's not him who started it. Rather, it's us. We rebelled against him. The mindset on the flesh, Romans 8 says, is enmity with God. It's hostility with God. This is the way that we are apart from Christ. And yet when we put our faith in him and he forgives our sins, we are now reconciled to him. We are at peace with him. We have peace with God, no longer at war with him and him no longer out to get us in judgment. And of course, the wonderful thing about this is that God is the one who initiated it in the first place. So it isn't even us just going and giving God the idea, but God sought us out to bring a message of peace. That's what's going on in Luke chapter 2. He's the one that sent the Savior. He's the one who initiated the peace treaty. And he's the one who gave his son so that he could make it possible. Peace on earth comes because Jesus came into the world in human flesh and died as a like substitute for our sins. So we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God because of that. It is an objective peace. But of course, as we go through life, there are troubles, there are uh, difficulties that come, and we need to uh, maintain a, a disposition of peace. We don't want to live in constant fear and worry and anxiety and turmoil. And though our circumstances externally may not be peaceful at all, in fact, they may be worse after we become a Christian because of certain hostilities toward us and the struggle that we have in our conscience against our sin and so on, we can nonetheless have peace even in our Christian life. And so Philippians chapter 4 tells us about this. Paul says in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He goes on in verse 9 to say, The things you have heard, or learned rather, and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is speaking not just of the objective peace that God gives, but of the experience of that peace, the subjective experience of that peace, the fact that you can know and in a certain sense feel this peace. Now, it's a little bit uh, difficult for us to authoritatively declare when we have peace from God sort of enter into our lives because our feelings are uh, somewhat unreliable as judges of some of these things, that nonetheless, if we are anxious, we are to take these things to God so that he might help us to not carry those anxieties in the same way. This doesn't mean we stop caring about anything. 
It doesn't mean that we're unconcerned. It doesn't mean that there's not even a proper type of being anxious or concerned, in particular for matters that have to do with the gospel and a care for other people and their salvation. The Apostle Paul describes this in other places, such as Philippians 2, where he says that, that Timothy was concerned or anxious for the welfare of the Philippians, and that was a good thing. But nonetheless, we can take these things to God and experience the peace of God, a freedom from worrying about things in the same way that the nations do, that unbelievers do. Experiencing uh, peace from not, not worrying about things in the same way as we would if we were apart from Christ. And of course, we have confidence in this not only because of what it says here, but also because we know the way that God thinks of us as believers. We know that he cares about us. We know that, he re- that we can rely upon him. And so the book of 1 Peter, Peter says that we're not to be anxious, but we are to cast all our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. He cares for us. So then we can know that we have a standing of peace before God. And then we can experience subject to peace in our walk before him. One day, though, God is going to bring peace even more comprehensively. No more war or conflict. No more lack. No more threats. No more temptations. No more worries. And there is one man through whom he will do this. And when this man has come into the world, this is what is being announced. This man who is not even yet a man, but a mere child, a baby who has been born. This is the only way to peace. Some of you are uh, perhaps here and you are in turmoil. Circumstances, conscience, whatever it might be. And you want peace, but you're a little hesitant to find it by coming to God and surrendering and laying down your turned away from him, your rebellion against him. You don't want to give that up. You want peace, but you also want the pleasures of sin. And if that's the case, you won't find it. You won't find that kind of peace. But if you're willing to say that what God can give is better than anything that I could pursue, if you're willing to understand, like Moses did, that the pleasures of sin are passing and that Christ is a greater reward, then you can come to him and freely receive the salvation that he gives and the peace that comes along with it. He eagerly gives this, and this is why he sent his son into the world. Well, God has made a surprising way of announcing his son's arrival into the world, and he has made a surprising way of even bringing him into the world. Um, You notice that this was all announced to the shepherds. I wonder what this says about God's view of human circumstances and position. Sometimes we might look with envy at the high and the mighty and the powerful and the influential. Maybe you feel like you're missing out because you're not part of that party. You know, you think you're missing something because... You're not part of that group. You're not invited in. You're not welcomed in. And maybe this causes you to hold some envy or discontentment or to be covetous and to try to get yourself there, even being willing to compromise truth to do so. But here God shows that he has his own way of doing things. We might read or listen to the news or hear people talk and we see who's popular. We see who's well-known. And it can seem like the really important things are the things that are going on out there. Meanwhile... The Son of God was born and laid in a manger and announced to shepherds that aren't even named in the scripture. And this shows us that God's paradigm about what's important is very different. And we shouldn't be drawn astray, seeking after the kinds of things that we view as important or the world views as important, but instead what God views as important. And of course, there is nothing more important than what consists of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the work that Christ has done. So what happens now? 
Well, in verses 15 through 20, the shepherds respond to the good news. The shepherds respond to the good news, and they do so by bearing witness to this good news. So when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, they visit the child in his manger. Verses 15 and 16, they visit the child in his manger. They begin saying to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that's happened which the Lord has made known to us. The angels appeared and spoke the words, but it is the Lord who gave the message. The Lord has made these things known to us. And you note that they're not explicitly told to go, but of course, that is the implied message. This is the sign that you're going to find. And of course, who would not go if they heard about all of these things? So they are in a hurry. Let's go. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. There was no star at this point, at least that we're told about, for them to follow. No map, no, uh, no route to get there. They just had to go search, and it was worth it because they find Mary and Joseph and the baby. It is just as they had been told, the baby lying in the manger. When they get there, they relay the message from the angels. They relay the message from the angels. They report the message in verse 17. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. So they themselves wanted to go see what was going on, but then they got there and they don't just observe this, but they also pass along all that they had been told. No doubt telling them it came from an angel and then this heavenly host, this uh, this multitude of the heavenly hosts. But then they also communicate the message that had been given to them. They're saying, this is who this is. This is the Savior, Christ the Lord. This is the one who has been born and peace on earth among men with whom God is pleased and glory to God in the highest. And... Though they were encouraged to go and to see for themselves to validate the message, when they go, they do more than this. And they communicate to the others who are there, Mary and Joseph, and not only that, but there are others, because verse 18 says, all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them. They are making known God's interpretation of these events, and they are announcing and spreading the word to corroborate all that God has done. God has promised this. Having come, or God has promised that this would come to Mary and to Joseph, he told the shepherds, and now all the word is spreading. And it's starting to become something that is very well known, at least among more than just a very few people. So then, they come, and they bring this message, and the the audience wonders. All who heard it wondered. All who heard it were amazed. This isn't that they were wondering, like, I wonder what they mean. This is wondering, saying, this is incredible. I can't believe this is happening. These guys are showing up out of nowhere, and they're saying that they heard all this stuff, and here's this baby in a manger, and they are in awe. But one particular person has an even more specific response, and that is the mother of the child, Mary, verse 19. It says, Mary treasures and ponders the message. Mary treasured all of these things. In addition to hearing and being amazed, Mary treasures these things, um, which has to do not so much with the value that she places upon them, though she does, but with the fact that she is uh, putting them in storage, so to speak. She is uh, taking what she knows, the things that she's already heard from the angel, which she treasured up in her heart, but she's now adding this to her, to her vault. These are the things that are amazing that have taken place. And she, she compiles them more and more. And as she does so, 
She is pondering them in her heart. And the word carries the idea, really, of just thinking about them and thinking through them and trying to put the pieces together. Mary doesn't know as much as we know about Jesus because we have everything that's revealed afterward. And at this point, she only knows some limited information. And so she's thinking about them, not forgetting them, but she's not just doing that. She is reasoning, just as the prophets did in the Old Testament when they heard about the message of of the word of God and the promises about Christ. And they were trying to figure out who's it going to be and when he's going to come. And they would even search their own writings to find that out. Well, here Mary also is thinking about these things and pondering them in her heart. Of course, what this means as well is that as she stores them up and as she thinks about them and as she remembers them, there's a repository of truth for someone like Luke, to come along later and to go to Mary who heard all of these things and remembered them and to gather that information from her carefully, as he said at the beginning of this letter, investigating it carefully from the beginning so that he could write it out for us in consecutive order. And so Mary's remembrance and treasuring of these things results in our being able to read about it and learn about it even to this very day. But more than this, there's now cross-confirmation. The shepherds They found the sign that confirmed the message to them. The shepherds served as a sign to the people who were there as they all came and testified to who this Jesus was. And they brought the words to Mary and to Joseph who now not only heard what they had heard in Luke 1 and Matthew 1 from the angels individually themselves, but also now this testimony is corroborated by these shepherds as well. Well, having done their job and having seen confirmation of what God had promised to them, they return, and as they do so, they glorify God for his words and his works. This is exactly what Jesus came into the world that might happen. Glory to God in the highest, and this is what the shepherds do. They went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. They glorify God for his words, the things that they had heard, what they had heard from the angels. And then they glorify God for what they had seen, this young child in a manger, just as had been told them. So we have an accumulation growing of witnesses to all of this taking place. And we have this truth that God has sent his son into the world so that there might be peace among those who are pleasing to God. And there might be glory given to God by those who receive the salvation that he provides. And so Jesus has been born, and there is more still to come. Let's pray together. God, thank you for sending your son into the world. And may it be that we are found pleasing to you, those who have faith in Christ. We know that without faith it is impossible to please you, but you have made it possible by us knowing and hearing the gospel, and us responding in faith. And may it be that you are glorified among your people as you so deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.